0: This episode was first published last year, and it's a nice companion to our most recent show with Peter Kagayama, called For the Love of Cities. In that episode, we asked why we connect with some places and not with others and how to boost community pride. In this episode, we look at forgotten parts of America and how to save them. Such a contrast to the regions that are doing really well.
1: The wealthiest parts of America, mostly around big cities and not all big cities, have seen average incomes rise much faster than in other regions, especially in the last four decades. So in this episode, we're going to look at some towns and cities that have lost out.
0: Discarded places and the fight to save them. Michelle Wild Anderson.
2: wanted a term that described kind of active decision-making. So discarded America to me is just a way of describing more actively that I think we have given up on many of these places. We're gonna have to keep working at these problems, do something, do it today, experiment, and just refuse to give up.
0: Our show is about fixes.
2: Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do
0: we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it?
1: We often talk about poverty in America in terms of certain socioeconomic or racial groups and the hurdles they might face. But there are regions that are poor pretty much wall to wall, border to border, Entire neighborhoods and even counties and cities that fall far below the median. What do we do about those places that aren't just a patchwork of rich or poor or middle class, but almost entirely poor?
0: While some towns and cities have a strong tax base with thriving local businesses, good schools, libraries and strong local government services, It's the very opposite for communities that are struggling to pay for even the most basic needs of their people.
1: The health of our towns and cities shape people's personal safety, their comfort, even their life chances. We'll explore this with our guest, Michelle Wild Anderson, Professor of Property, Local Government and Environmental Justice at Stanford Law School.
0: Michelle is the author of the new book, The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America.
1: She joins us from San Francisco. Welcome to How Do We Fix It?
2: Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Really excited about this conversation. Yeah,
1: Richard and I have been talking about the book, and it's such a deep dive into these different areas that you studied. But before we get into the specifics, talk to us about discarded places. Are they mostly rural? Are we talking about fading cities. What is your focus?
2: Discarded America refers to the giant parts of many states, if most states really, that have not found their foothold in the 21st century service economy, except for a few tourist towns and college towns. The vast majority of most of our states is still sort of seeking a major job base. And some of those places are rural, some are older suburbs, some are big cities.
0: And some are are politically conservative, some are much more liberal, right?
2: Right. And that also was really important to me in this book, to hold that political diversity, the urbanization diversity, and racial diversity, because you get a lot of different profiles for communities that have this problem.
0: Now, it's not just the, the cities and communities at large, it's also neighborhoods that you think about, right? That There's a difference between citywide poverty and neighborhood poverty.
2: Right. And that is such an important distinction. So there's we've got three scales of what we could call spatial inequality, although that's a nerdy term for it. We've got regional inequality. This basic problem you can see most famously in New York City, that New York City's Economy is a driver for the entire state of New York. Um, but then you've got neighborhood inequality, which is um, captured in a heartbreaking way by the fact that in 2012, there was a 21-year life expectancy difference between the richest neighborhood in Stockton and the poorest neighborhood in Stockton.
0: That's the huge difference between different neighborhoods. We certainly see a vast gap between rich and poor In parts of New York, for instance, much of the Bronx compared with the Upper East Side of Manhattan, you looked at entire communities.
2: It's city-level poverty or county-level poverty, which is the problem of uh, jurisdictions, local governments, that are poor and broke.
0: So let's walk through the four communities that you spent so much time researching and visiting First, Stockton, California in the Central Valley.
2: Stockton is the most diverse place in the United States. It's got huge shares of population from all over the world, immigrants, refugees, um, people that have been dislocated from foreign wars, in, in addition to deep California roots in the gold rush and in the Dust Bowl and um, displacement from other regions of the country. It is also an urban center in a giant rural region that is one of America's most important bread baskets for food production. So Stockton is the food manufacturing, food processing, food distribution center for California's San Joaquin Valley.
0: It sounds like it's a pretty wealthy place. No?
2: Uh, Stockton does have a lot of wealth, actually. There are very wealthy neighborhoods in Stockton and certainly in the larger region. The San Joaquin Valley in California has always been known for extremely high rates of inequality, a sort of owner tier of the region that has a lot of land and a lot of wealth, and then farm workers who, needless to say, um, struggle to secure any level of a living wage. So Stockton has always embodied that inequality, and that's true to this day.
1: Most of us, when we think about ingrained poverty, we imagine faded cities, perhaps industrial, de cities. But that's not always the case. You also spent time further north in Josephine County, Oregon. That's a very different kind of place.
2: Right. Josephine County is part of this giant region of timber counties in Oregon and Washington. It was a major supplier of old growth timber and also just timber more broadly. And it's very, it's very rural. But again, rural regions are often manufacturing centers. And so it's also a hub for wood products manufacturing, the things that come from wood, and trucking and distribution related to timber. So like most rural parts of America, it has this industrial sort of strand to its economy.
1: But what happened?
2: What happened is a wave, a combination of globalization, restructuring of the timber industry and the corporations that were um, operating big timber and environmental law. And those three things, including, you know, most famously the spotted owl conflict that locked down some of the oldest um, old growth forests um, from uh, timber production. So those three things came together to result in long term sustained job loss across that region.
0: Next, let's consider Detroit, which uh, is a city that's well known for its municipal bankruptcy that happened about nine years ago. Uh, We've actually spoken about Detroit on a previous podcast with Jody Adams Kirshner. So Detroit is next.
2: I mean, I'll just um, pin down a couple of key periods for Detroit. 1970s Detroit, like many manufacturing cities across the country, took a big wave of job loss. But then in the early 2000s, it took another one. And I think a lot of Americans don't realize how many manufacturing jobs were lost in the early 2000s. Our manufacturing productivity remained strong, but we lost a lot of jobs. And Detroit headed into the recession, having just taken this big wave of losses. And then it was slammed by the recession. And because the Sun Belt cities like Stockton were so famous for their foreclosure crisis, I think many people didn't recognize how hard Rust Belt cities were also hit with subprime lending and foreclosure losses so detroit took this simultaneous hit at the household level through the foreclosure crisis and at the income level through um, you know the recession itself and then this manufacturing slide um, so by the time detroit reached 2012 it's fair to say that the city had hit a low point on all dimensions of, of its economic life.
0: And there's a racial aspect to this. We were talking about Stockton being the most racially diverse city in America, Josephine County in Oregon, uh, mostly white. Detroit is is largely African-American, as, especially the people who have stayed in Detroit rather than left the city, right?
2: Yeah, Detroit is actually the fastest diversifying city in America. So Detroit is often, you know, its history is understood on the black-white axis, but it is actually diversifying very quickly. But the history of discrimination against black housing seekers is a story that goes all across the 20th century, um, including a wave of fraud and exploitation in the 70s. And then the subprime crisis, 2005 to 2010s period, and an ongoing um, uh, record levels of homeownership displacement from black Detroiters.
1: Finally, let's look at Lawrence, Massachusetts, one a little closer to home for Richard and me. That's a city that, like Detroit, was a real manufacturing hub in its day, but is a very different place today. Tell us about it.
2: A hundred years ago, Lawrence is a really famous city. It was one of America's most um, important textile manufacturing cities. And it became very famous for a strike in 1912 called the Bread and Roses strike. Fast forward to the 1960s and that textile manufacturing base has more or less exited for the south where it's gonna then exit again and head to you know global points everywhere.
0: I've been driving up and down 495 the highway uh, around Boston for decades now. And just scoping out the city from 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 the interstate highway, it does look like Lawrence has come back somewhat from the utter despair of the early 2000s, late 1990s when so many of those huge old brick mill buildings were abandoned.
2: You're right. And it's it's kind of mind-boggling how big they are. One of the old mills in Lawrence was as big as the Empire State Building laid on its side. They sat empty for so long that some chunks of many of the buildings and some whole mills were torn down. But those that remained, remained um, blighted all the way into the 2000s. But there has been just intense effort and commitment to reclaiming some of that land and repurposing those mills for housing and jobs.
1: You use the term gateway cities or gateway communities, and Lawrence is one of them. So explain what you mean by a gateway community.
2: The, the meaning of the term gateway cities Describes these immigrant portals to be transitioned to becoming American. So, these sort of first mill town hubs where immigrants were received, adapted to American culture, English language, and so forth. I love the term, though, for a broader understanding of launching people out of poverty and into greater opportunity. Um, so I actually try to use the term in a broader way to imagine gateway cities as an alternative phrase for a poverty trap. So much of discarded America right now is functioning as a poverty trap. So gateway cities is my description for what we need to create um, as, a, as an alternative to that.
0: Why do you use the term discarded America? It's very evocative. And I'd like you to explain a little more about uh, what you're talking about.
2: i That's such an amazing question. I'm so glad you asked. I wanted a term that described kind of active decision making. There's a way in which we naturalize decline in poor places. And I think it, it misunderstands that places don't have to die. There is no natural lifespan. So Discarded America, to me, is just a way of describing more actively that I think we have given up on many of these places. We have slowed our levels of redistribution to sort of move federal and state tax money toward them to try to rebuild their public services and allow people just basic opportunities.
1: These areas are also regions, like much of the country, that were hit with two great crises in the last 20 years. One was the 2008-2009 financial crisis and recession. The other was the opioid and substance abuse crisis.
2: Yeah, I'm so glad you asked about those together because I think they should be understood as sort of two layers that kind of begin in 2008 or so and just carry on to this day. It's, you know, from the Fed's point of view, the Great Recession ended quickly. From the point of view of local government revenues, it did not. And in fact, the 2010 to 2020 period is often referred to as the lost decade for local governments because the nature of the Great Recession as a foreclosure crisis suppressed local government revenues for years after the recession was over.
1: Yeah, explain why for people who don't who don't really understand how the tax system works in a lot in a lot of communities.
2: Yeah, the quick version is that local governments rely very heavily on property tax revenue and property tax revenue, of course, is based on the value of houses That's one piece. Piece number two is that since the 80s, most states have created controls on how we assess property through their state constitutions. And those um, controls tend to lock assessed value into the time of last transfer. The foreclosure crisis by definition is a mass transfer of property. And so the bottom line is that the Property values crashed, assessed values reset at that lower rate, and it takes a long time for revenues to reflect recovery in housing values.
0: So those decisions instantly led to there being much lower revenues in many cities that were hit hardest by the foreclosure crisis.
2: Yes. And they take, you know, and the recession, of course, you take, you know, losses on sales tax revenues. If a city has the authority under state law to enact an income tax, then they lose on that, too. They, You know, one source of revenue after another, the recession hit cities. But the property tax losses were the the sustained ones.
0: And there's the opioid crisis as well.
2: That layers in across the same period to drive all kinds of of pressures on social services pressures on crime and violence and policing you know public responses to crime and violence damage to public property sort of drug dealing in local parks all of these sort of layers of pressure and, and um, trouble on local governments.
1: So you've got rising crime, some tied to, to drug use. You've got falling tax revenues, and that leads to falling services. If the, they don't have the money, they just have to let some of their police officers go, and they have to close their libraries, and they have to, you know, some cases turn off streetlights and all kinds of of terrible things, which then leads to even more people fleeing the area, less businesses, less likely to invest. And it just seems like a downward spiral.
2: That's a good description. Yeah. And because a lot of those big cuts lag the recession, because people, local governments will hold on as long as they possibly can. They'll sell property, they'll do whatever they can to balance their books in emergency circumstances. But by 2012 to 2014, these kinds of governments had nothing left to sell. And so they start engaging in these 20 to 40 to 50 percent cuts of their departments. And it's at that point that you start to see unrecognizable damage to public services, you know, whether it's the closure of all public libraries or it's 40 percent cuts to the police department, they have force the issue of this broke local government.
0: This is How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our guest is Michelle Wild Anderson. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Podcast ads pass your brand the mic. So you can stop shouting from the rooftops. And start speaking to the people who are really listening. Give your campaign room to be heard with podcast ads. Go to go.acast.com slash ads to learn more. Let's talk next about inequality, which has been growing in recent decades across the country. Michelle is based at Stanford University, right in the heart of California's Silicon Valley. Quite a contrast to the Central Valley. How does that region compare with places that we've been talking about?
2: So I work in Palo Alto, which your listeners will probably recognize as a very wealthy community. And across the 2008 to, I don't know, the the next decade after 2008, Palo Alto invested $76 million in renovating its library system, state-of-the-art technology, Wi-Fi, public spaces, programs for kids, et cetera. Meanwhile, Palo Alto is home to hospitals and universities, restaurants, businesses that employ tons of low-wage workers. Many of those workers commute in from Stockton. That means that they're away from their kids two to three hours a day in order to take those commutes on the chin.
0: Let's be clear, even during a time of day when the highways aren't absolutely jammed with traffic, the drive from Stockton to Palo Alto is what, at least an hour?
2: yeah at least an hour i mean there i've never made it in less than an hour and a half but yeah it's a very long time away so these buses and various commuter vans and so forth will leave stockton often at four thirty in the morning to get people to these low-wage jobs in the silicon valley interior and so meanwhile across this same period stockton couldn't keep all of its libraries open at all In even the libraries, it did keep open. It dropped down to essentially half hours. It slashed its recreational services, so youth programs after school and summer. Um, So you're watching these parallel worlds. And what's important to picture about this is that in Palo Alto, The truth is that libraries are an amazing amenity, but this is a place that can afford private book collections, that can afford nannies who sing to kids, that can afford all kinds of of home wifi and home computers. They can afford private substitutes for these public services. But in the poorest neighborhoods of Stockton, if those things are not available free at some level by a nonprofit or the government, they won't be available at all.
0: This all sounds pretty depressing, but you found many examples in Stockton, Detroit, Lawrence, Massachusetts, and Josephine County, Oregon, where local people are fighting back to save their communities. Give us a few examples.
2: Just as you describe, there is a Fierce commitment to these communities and real leadership and creativity on these hardest problems. So I'll highlight um, one woman from uh, Stockton who's been on my mind a lot this this week in particular just an extraordinary advocate named Jasmine Della Foss. She was a high school student in Stockton who lost 10 of her peers in the high school to gun violence sort of one at a time between 2010 and 2012. And she's the kind of person who grew up really as she puts it nihilistic about Stockton. I heard this over and over in my interviews. Like people just As kids, they know that their path to survival and prosperity is to get the hell out of their town. And Jasmine grew up with that feeling. She ended up as a 17-year-old having an opportunity to intern at City Hall and really never looked back. Um, Jasmine became one of these warriors for the city of Stockton, and what she did was one thing at a time. She worked on literacy programs for kids, built out a program related to that, got other people involved. Youth um, Development Academy run in the summers on the local college campus. Then she used a bunch of those youth to do a parks reclamation project, became involved in these incredible trauma-informed care efforts going on in the city to really show up for the damage from witnessing and experiencing gun violence, started to work on school reform. I mean, one thing after another. For her and so many of the leaders in this book, they were always catalysts. They never put on their red cape and said, like, I've got it. I'm here to save the day. Instead, they built these little mini armies of parents and families, volunteers to really take responsibility for these problems and move on them.
0: So a form of civic muscle is developed.
2: It's not just that you clean up the park, it's that you've believed your whole life that you have no control or agency over the sort of problems in your environment. And when you take that place back and you learn the civic mechanics that control public works and parks and so forth, you develop a form of, of, you know, power and knowledge and education and pride that I think helps to switch these vicious cycles into virtuous cycles. Um, And you create, you know, in Lawrence in particular, I describe how, you know, costume parties and riverside cleanups, and there's so much fun and friendship and purpose and music wrapped up in those kinds of projects. Um, You know, they create a center of civic life for, for a community that we're, For a long time, people have been um, afraid of each other and under a lot of physical stress related to levels of violence.
1: Right. That's a word that comes up a lot in your book, trauma. People need treatment for that. And a lot of the programs you look at really try to address this. How does that work?
2: I mean, there's been an incredible wave of neuroscience research um, in the last twenty plus years that has really looked at the neurological consequences of of trauma in childhood and including um, witnessing or even hearing about community violence and um, and that work has really focused on the importance of healing and caregiving um, for people who, who have that kind of um, history, you know, there'll be street corners where people know what happened at that street corner. They know of a killing that took place there. And that street corner, every time they walk or, by it or avoid it, it carries the memory and the sort of fear of that event, and I think when a neighborhood loads up with a lot of those kinds of events, you get people who um, carry physiologically toxic levels of stress that make a person ready for conflict and violence, and you get people who sort of carry these levels of stress with them at all points, or stop leaving their homes. And so in all of these places, and beautifully including Lawrence and Stockton, They've developed really sustained efforts to stop pretending that that's not going on and really work systematically on taking back public spaces and really helping people to to recover from from that level of, of exposure.
0: What can states and the federal government do that they're not doing now Um, sometimes they actually make it harder, for instance, for struggling cities to to get by through mandates and, and limiting how they can raise money, right?
2: They do. I think states put all kinds of handcuffs on their local governments from solving these kinds of problems. So part of what states can do sometimes is get out of the way. Um, That's a legal (laughs) prescription. You know, there's laws that actually block cities from exercising authority that they need to answer some of these problems. At at the political level, both federally and state, we talk about these problems as intractable and, you know, just um, impossible to reverse. And when we do that, it gives everybody an excuse to withdraw. And I think part of the sustained economic withdrawal from these places is actually based in narratives of hopelessness. So I think actually federal and state governments need to take a page from these activists' playbook and just believe that if they get involved, there is good work to do.
1: We've talked about grassroots community efforts and and what state uh, governments can do, but there's also a role for businesses and for private public-private partnerships. What can businesses do if they they want to stay in one of these areas or they, they want to help? Where is the opportunity for them?
2: Businesses are so important and actually they're an under-appreciated part of civic life. I mean, we think of them as economic engines, job, you know, employers and so forth, but they're also civic centers they're sort of places that you know um, bring, um neighborhoods to life and um, create contact points for people to work together um, there's in each of these cities part of the conversion to you know more virtuous cycles were these catalysts businesses, small businesses, in most cases, cafes and so forth that allow people to work through stuff together and sort of allow people to sit together um, and sort of make progress. And unfortunately, for 50 years or so, urban policy has had to keep relearning the same lesson over and over, which is that if you pour money into outside um, multinationals who are really footloose. They're very um, capable of moving quickly. You pour tax incentives and subsidies into those companies rather than into your small business community, you will um, lose those dollars quickly. And unfortunately, local governments keep doing that. They keep, you know, chasing the tail of these bigger employers in deals that would never survive a cost-benefit analysis. And meanwhile, you've got, you know, smaller um, manufacturing companies included, but are, you know, at the aggregate represent way more jobs than a single big employer who comes to town for a few
0: years. Michelle, to end with, what gives you hope? What's the best argument against people saying these communities are dying communities?
2: I... This book is full of my answer to that. I have been, I've admired so much the tenacity and bravery and creativity of the people in this book. But I wanna answer that question with the whiteboard in Mayor Dan Rivera's office in Lawrence, Massachusetts. He was the mayor through some really, really tough years. He and all of the people around him had a sense of just fierce urgency around the work in front of them. And he had a a whiteboard in his mayoral conference room. And at the top, he said, "Um, what can we do? Can we do it today? Stop explaining the problem, start explaining the solution. And then at the bottom, his wife, who knew how hard they were all working, had written a separate message that said, keep your head up. (laughs) And I thought, you know, that whiteboard kind of sums it up. We're going to have to keep working at these problems do something, do it today, experiment, and just refuse to give up.
1: Keep your head up.
2: Keep your head up.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Michelle Wild Anderson.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate it.
0: Michelle Wild Anderson talking about the fight to save the town, the name of her new book. Coming up, our recommendation and conversation.
1: So, Richard, I gather you have another TV show for us this week.
0: It's the golden age of television in so many ways, and we often find ourselves uh, watching TV instead of going to the movies. One example of this is a show about two old white guys with absolutely no redeeming social message, Jim, but but it's fascinating, dark, and brilliantly acted. I'm talking about "The Old Man," and the two stars are John Lithgow and Jeff Bridges. Uh, Bridges plays a rogue former CIA agent who lives off the grid. The FBI's Harold Harper, uh, played by Lithgow is called on to hunt him down because of Bridges' complicated past that involves the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in the 1980s. Great performances all around. Standouts include Amy Brenneman and Aaliyah Shawkat. And the music on The Old Man is also uh, something to really savor and enjoy. I thought I'd mention that because uh, you love music, Jim.
1: Yes, I do. And speaking of TV versus movies, I actually went to the movie theater for the first time since the start of the pandemic a few days ago. And like any good patriotic American, I saw the new Top Gun.
0: Yep. And I'm just about to see it. Next, our conversation. This was a tough one for us to do Jim because a lot of what Michelle Wild Anderson is talking about is is profoundly depressing and uh, places that so many people I think are hopeless and she gives some stirring accounts of people who are fighting back to save their local communities. And I mean local, because so often when we talk about problems in the country, we're talking about national solutions. But this really is an episode that deals with uh, solutions from the ground up.
1: Yeah. And you know how much that kind of ground up approach means to me. It's also important for those of us from our kind of background, college educated, mobile, in our demographic segment, people tend to move around a fair amount. They're used to the idea of going off to college. Then they are very likely to move to one of these booming uh, urban centers after college and make their way in a career. There's a lot of people in this country who don't of course, they don't go to college, but they also don't want to move away from where they live. And we can look at those places and say, well, what are you doing there? You know, why, why haven't you moved somewhere where the jobs are better? But people are very attached to their communities, to their jobs. They don't want to leave their grandmother. They don't want to leave their network of family and cousins and friends.
0: And to be fair, they are from somewhere, where so many of us uh, privileged people are from nowhere. I've moved around a lot in my life. And uh, I love where I live now, but I'm not nearly as deeply rooted in Guilford, Connecticut, as so many people are here.
1: So what do we do to help people and what do we do to support people who choose to stay in their communities? We can't just say, oh, move somewhere else. And what is exciting about some of the things that Michelle was talking about is empowering people to make the most of the communities where they live to reverse some of these downward trends. Some of it has to come from the top. Some of it has to come from, from government and resources to help these towns carry on. But we also talked about stuff that comes from the ground up
0: one of the solutions that you raise, Jim, is the role played by businesses. And and as Michelle Wild Anderson said, uh, very often it's local businesses, businesses that are really rooted in the community as opposed to multinationals that can make the most difference. You, as editor of Popular Mechanics in the past, uh, visited Detroit a number of times. Um, you had an example of... of Business helping the city uh, bounce back from its bankruptcy. There are,
1: there are a lot of examples, actually. I, we we actually did a whole special issue about what could be done to save Detroit, and had a lot of recommendations. And it's really exciting. A lot of the things we talked about are are starting to come to fruition. And you have companies like Ford, which of course you know got its start in Detroit and helped jumpstart Detroit as a major world city. Ford is has not entirely left Detroit. They have invested heavily in a rundown neighborhood, and they're creating a can, kind of a te- tech research campus for the future of mobility. You've got uh, Rocket Mortgage. Uh, Dan Gilbert, the, the billionaire owner of that company, has been extremely devoted to Detroit. He's brought in uh, thousands of employees. He They're located right downtown, and he's been a major player in, in being a booster for Detroit, and I know a guy in Detroit on the other end of scale who bought an old broken down factory warehouse kind of building and opened it up as a, a workspace for all kinds of different business startups as kind of a tech incubator And, you know, for a time, one of the businesses he had where some guys were making mead out of honey and then somebody else was repairing motorcycles and somebody else was (laughs) building furniture. And I love those kind of grassroots startup uh, vibe. And Detroit's a great place for that.
0: Well, we're a startup here, Jim, and how do we fix it? And and our vision is to grow our audience. So uh, you can help us uh, by spreading the word on, on social media. We do a lot of posts on Instagram and sometimes on LinkedIn and a lot on Twitter. Um, and another area where you can really help us is joining our community on Patreon by uh, uh, giving us a modest donation to help us promote ourselves. Uh, that's at Patreon.com/slash How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard Davies,
1: and I'm Jim Meggs,
0: our producers, Miranda Schaefer. This show is a production of Davies content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits, mostly in the bridging space. Uh, Find out more at Daviescontent.com.
1: Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.